Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. Particularly in Australia where there is such a fear of talking about racism, it's such a um, it's such a no-go zone. It's like where we don't talk about it, we don't acknowledge it. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past, present and becoming, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. This week on the program, we speak with Tamar Hopkins, researcher and lawyer, about racial profiling by police. Tamar discusses how racial profiling functions in Victoria, lessons that can be learned from the Canadian legal system, and how positive change can be made going forward. My name's Tamar Hopkins. I'm currently a PhD student at UNSW. I'm the founding lawyer of the Police Accountability Project at the Flemington Legal Centre, where I worked from 2005 to 2016. Today we're going to be talking about racial profiling. So to start right at the beginning, what What is racial profiling and how does it function right now in Victoria? So racial profiling is the the use of race as a trigger for suspicion. And it's it's most usually applied in terms of policing decisions, but it can be applied to Centrelink decisions, to education, housing, like across a whole spectrum. Um, But it's really kind of... I guess the use, uh, an authority person or body um, uh, putting extra suspicion and and doubt um, and scrutiny on a person because of their race, their racialised status and and appearance often, but sometimes by those bureaucracies it could just be the fact that they are a racialised person. But in the policing context, we usually think of it in terms of um, a person's racialised appearance as triggering that additional scrutiny. And the impacts of racial profiling are um, numerous and significant. Yeah, so there's a whole range of impacts of racial profiling on the whole community. Um, So it it is a key driver behind the racialisation of our prison populations. The police are the gateways to the, the criminal justice system. Who they pay attention to reflects who is um, who is arrested, who is caught in custody, um, who they pay attention to uh, affects the, the data on who is um, in custody and therefore who is stereotyped as being um, engaged in certain crimes. Um, so so it's, got a, it's got a hugely detrimental impact across the whole of the criminal justice system. Um, and absolutely it has a huge impact on people's perceptions of themselves as being, um, as being, you know, just how they're how they're seen when they're walking down the street. Whenever there is a kind of a media cry around the whole kind of, you know, say African gangs issue or Aboriginal drinking, um, then over that period, Africans and Aboriginal people feel really scrutinised. Just walking down the street, um, African youth recount stories of people crossing the road to avoid passing them. Um, it's just, I mean, the, the effects are absolutely huge. Uh, it's, and, and the, it's the other, the other thing is that it's a real factor in terms of st- 
stratifying our society along racialized lines and a driving force of inequality. Um, and of course, the the origins of racial profiling stem right back to the invasion of this country by white settlers and continue in in a continuity up until today, um, where of course you know vast more communities of colour are being impacted. So it's very a very important issue in our contemporary society. I think the systemic erasure of this issue it seems to be a really key point. Um, looking at an important report that came out in 2017 um, by the Police Stopped Outer Working Group called Monitoring Racial Profiling, one of the things I noticed in that report was that basically the report sort of discusses um, the current status quo in Victoria as of 2017 and also makes notes of some real world cases, but it also suggests a scheme to try and monitor racial profiling um, and sort of bring this really structural problem to light. Uh, And I noticed that one of the main objections brought forward by Victoria Police was that they were, um, it was all around sort of continuing to render this problem invisible and being concerned that talking about race or ethnicity and how it impacts on policing would worsen community relationships when in fact um, it's really the opposite. Yeah, it's been quite extraordinary um, dealing with the the kind of objections that come out of VicPol around um, introducing a data collection scheme because when you drill down into them, they disappear and you realise that they're just a a, a screen, a smoke screen that um, VicPol is presenting to to not go, not collect this data. So... um, so yeah, I mean, one of one of the smoke screens that was suggested was that communities, racialised communities in Victoria, uh, would be against uh, collection of of race data when it was quite clear from from the investigations by Flemington Kensington Legal Centre, which led to the um, initiation of this report, that it was absolutely supported by communities across across Victoria that that this kind of data be collected. So I guess I mean this is this issue of um, data collection is really really critical because because of the way crime statistics are used uh, against racial racialized people in you know all the crime scares and things like that that go on um, there is it's easy to drum up fear that collecting data that actually shines the spotlight back on what the police are doing could be misused to um, to uh, hurt communities of colour. However, it is this data that shows the differential treatment by police of people without reason, other reasons other than their race, is the data that we need to expose systemic racism. And it's this kind of data that we really need, not just across policing, but across our hospital systems, across our education systems, to start exposing the way um, institutional racism impacts in all of these institutions, and and I guess um, it's interesting looking at the uh, the shift that has gone on in Canada in terms of data collection because there was initially for decades a lot of reluctance to to collect this data because of fears that it would be used against racialized communities, and then there has suddenly been like this this kind of shift in the last. Um, decade to saying no, 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 we need this, and they now have um, all kinds of 
um, acts set up to collect data to shine the spotlight on how institutions are treating people differently because of race. And it's it's absolutely crucial because um, otherwise our institutions can pretend that uh, they treat people equally, which is absolutely not what's going on. So, so this is actually a really fundamental starting point. And I think particularly in Australia where there is such a fear of talking about racism, it's such a... Um, it's such a no-go zone. It's like where we don't talk about it, we don't acknowledge it. Um, we're a, a multi, apparently a successful multicultural country. Um, there's no issues with the way it's treat, Australia treated Aboriginal people. Like there's this kind of mythology of of what Australia is, and this this data is really critical at just throwing. Uh, a grenade, hand grenade into that mythology and saying, absolutely no, look at this. So so it's a fundamental starting point in actually addressing the the kind of, you know, institutionalised racism that, that occurs here. So, yeah, that, that report is really about saying to Vic Pohl, okay, it's time for you to to show us your data, see what's going on. So, um, and I guess to give listeners a little bit of background about where this project came from. Um, in 2013, there was a really big settlement of a race discrimination case, um, the Hale Michael and Constantinides case in the federal court, which led to um, the uh, um, creation of a new department within Victoria Police, the Priority Communities Division, which was ostensibly created to deal with issues such as racial profiling. And it um, sparked new policies, Australia's first anti-racial profiling policy, um, new human rights standards, um, and there was a, a trial into receipting, a very poor trial that was initiated by Victoria Police into issuing people with receipts when they stopped. Um, so th- these were kind of a whole lot of shifts that occurred as a result of that case. However, there was no... Um, mechanism built into that process to show whether or not it was effective, whether or not it was actually preventing racial profiling. And the clear word from the street, from everyone, was that racial profiling was absolutely still business as usual. And in fact, you know, where there's, there's lots of data coming out now about operations that are still potentially targeting Africans and and Indigenous peoples um, that community legal centres are exploring at the moment. So there's, it's, we're still seeing rate, um, racism being op- operationalised into the, the tactics of Victoria Police. So what's going? So we've got this whole kind of department. That what is it doing? You know, what is it doing? What? How effective is it? And so this racial profiling monitoring scheme is about. Okay, you've got these policies in place. Let's see if they're working. Let's let's monitor the, their effectiveness. Um, so that's that's really where this piece of work comes out of. But what has happened? The the um, the working group, the Stop Data Working Group that Flemington Kensington Legal Centre established, has been um, attempting to meet with Vic Pohl, um, attempting to to sort of you know seek responses to recommendations, to negotiate, to kind of come with. Um, with researched knowledge to this question and to try and solve this problem in a collaborative way with BigPoll and has been hit with a big brick wall at this stage, not getting anywhere. And so that's 
that's a very frustrating place to be in. Um, and I think it really indicates the need for um, much more um, a different style of tactic to be used to be dealing with this problem now. So that's, and at the moment across Victoria, there's growing um, interest in in uh, filing a second uh, large race discrimination claim that can be used to push Victoria Police to a much more significant, um, to more significant results that, that could actually lead to a reduction in racial profiling on the street. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's where that, that piece of work sits. Women on the Line. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. We're speaking with researcher and lawyer Tamar Hopkins about racial profiling by police. To look more towards your research, I noticed that in Canadian jurisprudence, there are factors that differentiate how their common law works that make it a lot easier to expose the systemic racism in how policing works. So, yeah, there's, there's a number of key revelations that really have arisen in Canadian common law that I think are really, really relevant to Australian legal practitioners here. And what's important to realise is that Canadian common law has a common lineage to Australian common law. It comes out of the UK. So it's the same judge-made law that is happening in Canada. It's gone in certain directions there as we have here. So it's very relevant to Australian lawyers and, and judges. And so one of one of the key things that has occurred in Canada is a real understanding of what racial profiling is. So there are clear definitions in common law about what racial profiling is and how to prove it. So this is not a legislative shift that's occurred in Canada. It's not a result of the Canadian Charter of the Constitution that sets out the rights and freedoms in Canada. This has arisen at common law in Canada. And so therefore, it's directly introducible here in, in Australia. Um, So that's a really key thing, that there's a clear definition. But other really important revelations that have happened in Canada are are things like like Australian courts have not been attentive to the source of police power to stop individuals on the street, for example. So our judges are not attentive to whether or not the police have reasonable grounds to stop someone and question them on the street. However, that issue is a key central question for courts in Canada what is the, the source of the police power to stop someone and question them investigatively in Canada? And courts in Canada have found that there is a common law power for police to question people, however, that this power is subject to very particular limits and thresholds. And those limits are that the police must have reasonable suspicion that an individual is connected to a particular offence before they can investigatively question them. So our courts here have not paid attention to that critical issue, which means that police are basically free to abuse people's rights to question them on the streets without any kind of limitation. There are some limits in our Evidence Act, which I think we could be doing more work to explore, and that is that when a person is under a state of psychological detention when they're being questioned by a police officer, the police officer must give them a caution for that evidence to be used in evidence against against that person. And that's a very underused um, section of our Evidence Act. But that's still not a threshold of when the police can actually start questioning that individual. 
So I think that failure to think about the legality of the police questioning powers is a really critical piece of understanding that needs to penetrate our Australian you know, judicial thinking. And so that's something we could really look at here in Australia. And I think another really important concept that comes out of Canadian case law is a deep understanding of the impact of psychological detention on individuals. That when a police officer approaches a person um, and singles them out for questioning, that they are under a state of psychological detention at that time. They are not actually free to leave. So even if the law allows them to leave, there is an understanding that that person is, at that point, is concerned, is legitimately concerned that their failure to assist the police will lead to an escalation force being used against them or an arrest or some, some kind of um, detrimental act by the police. So, so they're very much in a state of psychological detention. So in Australia, we have gone in completely the wrong direction. So we have this idea that if an individual shows willingness to assist the police, then they are willing to consent to whatever the police do to them. So their willingness to assist the police means that it's okay for the police to search them, to ask them whatever question they want, to take them back to the police station for a consent interview. And our courts have not understood that a person's willingness is actually their way of trying to stay alive. You know, it is a potentially fatal situation for a person to resist the police officer in a, in a street situation. And this is particularly the case for minorities who are all too aware of the potential lethality of encounters with police. And so, um, so the, these ideas are very clear in Canadian case law and we here in Australia deeply misunderstand the effects of police stopping on the psychology of individuals. So yeah, they're just a few things that we could take from Canadian legal thinking that I think would make a massive difference to the way um, Australian courts protect individuals' rights and identify racial profiling. I noticed based on the current situation in Victoria and which has come out of the 2013 Hale-Michael case that is discussed in the 2017 uh, Monitoring Racial Profiling Report, it's a situation where perhaps a, a, an incident like a, a stop and search or um, a field contact, I think is the, the, the terminology, so when the police speak to someone outside, um, is usually justified after the fact rather than having this approach at the start where people's rights are respected or there's a real understanding that it's not acceptable to, to stop someone based on what the police perceive their race or ethnicity to be. Yeah, that's right. So this is a really interesting issue because it shows that Victoria Police has in fact gone backwards as a result of the settlement and their working priority community um, division. So pr prior to uh, 2015, when they introduced their new field contact provisions, police would record... Um, not perhaps not all, because we really don't have data on how much recording they did, but they would record uh, their stops of individuals on the street. And so there would be some information about what the police say their reason was for that stop. And in many cases, they were actually recording um, their perception of the racial appearance of the person that they stopped. And so that that data was a very significant um, you, uh, 
piece of data that we were able to use in the Hale-Michael case. So we were able to show that um, in Flemington and North Melbourne between 2005 and 2008, the police were stopping African and Middle Eastern youth 2.5 times more like more than their population would suggest in the in the area based on um, their field contact stops. And these were stops where the, the person was stopped and no further police action was taken. So these are stops that are basically unnecessary. So we were showing that we were able to show from the police data that um, African, Middle Eastern and Middle Eastern youth were being unnecessarily stopped 2.5 times more than their proportion in the population would suggest, which is actually a very significant amount. So 2.5 times more is that's an odds ratio. Um, and in many places in the US, they, they are very concerned by proportions, say 1.7, 1.8 um, are reported as very significant findings. Anything above two is a real indication of racial profiling. So, so we really have some very significant data based on those field contact reports that Victoria Police were issuing. So, um, so what has happened in 2015 is that the police have introduced a new policy, field contact policy, that says you only have to record a field contact where you reasonably believe that a person has committed an offence. So that's the same threshold as when a police officer has grounds to arrest a person. So that is only going to apply in a very tiny number of stops, a fraction of the number of stops. So basically what this new policy says is that it doesn't have any restriction on the initial stop, but it only restricts the recording of those stops to those very tiny number of cases. So basically this new policy has meant that there is absolutely massive shift in the recording of stops that go on. So it's a huge step in the wrong direction around reducing transparency. So, you know, <laughs> when you, this kind of litigation that, and these kinds of outcomes, you can see that you get somewhere and it, we have like several steps back in the wrong direction at the moment. So we've got a lot of work to do in Victoria to, um, to, to making this practice of police more visible. So there are 20 major recommendations in the Monitoring Racial Profiling Report. How would uh, an effective racial profiling monitoring scheme work in Victoria? Our view is that it needs an external reference group that is working with Victoria Police to get its data collection up to scratch. So that needs to be, and the data needs to be um, uh, taken out of Victoria Police and looked at by an external body such as um, a body set up under the Victorian Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission or um, the Australian Human Rights Commission or a university or some, some kind of external trusted body that could look at the data and work with Victoria Police to collect that data. So that's, that's really important that this can't be left for as a, something for Victoria Police to do internally. Um, there also needs to be, obviously, a lot of commitment within Victoria Police to enforcing the collection of that data through, say, putting, um, you know, promotions based on effective recording, like shifting their whole kind of incentive structures to make sure that reporting actually goes ahead. Because the reality is that a lot of, you know, there is so much stuff that isn't monitored at all within Victoria Police. And to make, we, this needs to be a really big issue. So, 
The way that needs to happen is by having it, you know, a central concern of, say, the Chief Commissioner that this kind of data is collected. Then, then this also needs to be a vital concern to a body like IBAC. So IBAC is the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission and um, a recent report, bipartisan um, parliamentary report, um, uh, concluded that IBAC should be doing um, handling the um, human rights, all human rights complaints, um, all serious human rights complaints. And we believe that racial profiling matters are serious human rights complaints and that really the monitoring of Victoria Police data collection should be a fundamental concern for a body like IBAC. So what we're suggesting is that we need the, you know, the trusted academic human rights bodies to be working to collect that data. We need an oversight body such as IBAC to be enforcing the collection of that data. Um, and we need you know, serious commitment internally uh, by Victoria Police to, to ensure this data is collected. So that's just about data collection. But the, the other, there are a whole lot of other mechanisms that need to happen. So I've just described to you the absence of there being a threshold for in, um, police. Police don't at this stage require a reason before they stop a person on the street. So that is something that needs desperately to change in Victoria. And there are, there are strategies that need to be implemented to change that. I'll just take you to issues of like um, vehicle stops, for example. Here's a, a clear um, uh, example which, which where you can see a legislative difference can make a difference. So in Victoria, the police can stop vehicles for the purpose of um, licence and registration checks. So they, that is a very broad power, open to abuse, because if there's no fault that they're detecting in that case, they're just doing, making a decision to stop a vehicle to do a licence check. So they can be using any internal criteria to do that that they want, including uh, racial profiling. Whereas in, in New South Wales, police must detect an arrestable offence before they stop a vehicle. So there is a threshold protection in New South Wales that we are missing in, in Victoria that would um, go some way to reducing the potential for racial profiling. So the introduction of you know, much tighter thresholds on when police can actually engage in stops is a really critical strategy that needs to happen in Victoria. So not just vehicle stops, but as I've also said, in pedestrian stops. And that could be via legislative change um, from the government and, in addition, by common law change, by just the way our courts understand um, the powers of police to, to intervene. So, so yeah, th those are sort of two, two um, key mechanisms that need to happen for, you know, we need the monitoring and the reporting of the problem and we need these, these higher thresholds. So that, that's just two of the two of the key um, recommendations coming out of that report. And you mentioned earlier that there is um, a, a growing energy perhaps to uh, to put forward a second major um, racial profiling case in Victoria. I mean, where, where to with this issue from here? So to get action, we need a mechanism to, to get public attention on this. Um, and one of those ways is through public interest litigation and running a race discrimination claim. Another, another one is a very effective way of galvanising public attention on this critical issue. 
So um, this is a, a key issue facing all of the collective clients of community legal centres and legal aid and Aboriginal legal services across Victoria. So there is kind of real interest in pursuing a, a second claim. And it's, it needs more than one claim. We really need multiple claims to be running to be able to put the kind of pressure on that is needed. And I guess when I'm, I'm sort of thinking about this, uh, looking at overseas examples and in, in New York, there's a really clear example of it took a number of very large public interest claims about the stop and frisk program in New York for there to be any real change occurring there. The first major case, the Daniels case um, that settled in 2008, led to um, a release of data about what was actually going on in New York. It then took another case, Floyd, for a finding by a court that there was an illegal, unconstitutional, racially discriminatory practice occurring within the New York Police Department. So that led to a dramatic reduction in the number of stop and frisks that were going on in, in New York. So it's I see this as a, a process of incremental change and that one case can lead to another, needs to build on the next case, it builds on the next case and that gradually kind of more and more lessons can be learnt from previous cases to, to kind of really get the real outcomes that we want. So, And uh, coming from a legal background myself, it's, it's, I'm interested in how we can use the legal system to better support communities. There's obviously other strategies that communities can use, such as lobbying governments, protests, all kinds of different things to draw attention to this problem. But this is just one strategy, one tactic that can be used to kind of achieve some sort of meaningful change, which we don't have presently in Victoria. And if listeners are interested in finding out more about monitoring racial profiling or um, just this issue broadly, what, what's the best thing for them to do? So the monitoring racial profiling report is available on the Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre website. So that's a good place for people to go to. If you are a racialised person in Victoria and have um, have experienced racial profiling and are interested in being part of a claim, um, I would really encourage you to make contact with the Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre um, and talk to them about how you can get involved. Um, so, so we, that you know that would be a really concrete thing that you could do with the injustice that you have experienced. Um, and then, of course. Um, if people, if people are interested in assisting in terms of, you know, lobbying and raising this issue, then, you know, as much as much you can do to talk to people about the issue of racial profiling um, and, and to sort of raise awareness at this stage would be really great. But I would recommend people go to the Flemington Kensington Legal Centre's website. There's a lot of information that you can find out there. That was Tamar Hopkins speaking about racial profiling. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 If you'd like more information about today's program or to listen to the show again, you can find what you need on the Women on the Line website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. 
I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time.